I'm not too concerned when a child begins to cry when I start to preach, but I am concerned when adults begin to cry. When I... So Mark chapter 14, <clears throat> verses uh, 53 to 65. And in the bulletin, you'll notice the title is The Jewish Condemnation of Jesus. This is about Christ being put on trial. And... Uh, when I prepared this message, I was thinking we would pretty much get through the trial and uh, through these verses, but uh, we won't, and we'll reach a point where I'll simply say we need to move to the conclusion. The scripture passage is, is one in which Mark sometimes gives more detail than Matthew or Luke, and sometimes less. And so we have to, to fully appreciate all that's going on in this passage, at least make reference to Matthew uh, during our time of considering what is going on in the trial of Jesus. So hear the word of God. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in their midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this word, uh, we pray that you would enable us to uh, grasp the significance of what is taking place at this time and to understand something which happened 2,000 years ago has direct application and relevance to us in our lives today. May your Holy Spirit enable us to make this connection, to trust in the truth of your word and to understand how to live the life that Christ has called us to live in faith and trust in Him. So be with us, Holy Spirit. 
open up your word to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. There are a set of essays which uh, C.S. Lewis wrote throughout his lifetime. After he died, it was compiled into this book uh, by a very, very close friend of Lewis and a scholar of Lewis' writings. The book is called God in the Dock. Now, when I purchased this book during my college days, I had no idea what a dock was. And you millennials who are involved in the computer world, you think a dock is something that your computer is plugged into. But in the British system, the dock is the place where they take the accused who's on trial, and during the trial he has to sit in the dock or stand in the dock because he's being tried. He's the accused, and the judges and the witnesses are there before him, but that's where he is. He's in the dock, the one accused. Now, the title, God in the Dock. Now, why did Lewis's close friend uh, give this title to this book of essays which Lewis had written? Well, he did so for this reason. Uh, Lewis had made the comment that in the earlier ages, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, with the advent of Christendom, and even back in the pagan world, human beings saw themselves under the judgment of God or the gods. That is to say, they felt that their lives were being examined by God, and that someday they would face the judgment of God. And especially in Christianity, that has always been Christian thinking that someday we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But Lewis pointed out that it is a peculiar feature of the modern man that the roles have been reversed. God has consistently, and he's talking about the 20th century, and really from the time of the Enlightenment on, God has consistently been put on trial with human beings and human opinion, and human ideologies, and human thinking, placing him there. God coming under the scrutiny of human beings. Now, that concept is a concept of cosmic proportions, to see the roles reversed. But that's exactly what Mark is presenting to us here in these verses. Because when we have Jesus Christ on trial, we have placed God in the dock. And what it reveals is nothing less than the depth of the depravity of human beings. What this passage so deeply shows us is what human beings will do when evil is increasingly unleashed, and how that evil will manifest itself against the one who has no evil at all, even God himself, even God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. In the trial of Jesus, we see that human beings will accuse God for no good reason at all. 
and human witnesses will bring false testimony against God, who is the God of truth. And human judges will condemn God when God actually speaks the truth. Now, it's only those first two ideas that we can cover this morning that human beings will accuse God for no good reason at all and that human witnesses will lie about the God who is the God of truth. But even that will take us to the great lesson that this passage presents. And the great lesson is this, that even as the trial of Jesus reveals the kind of evil that human beings have because of our inheritance in Adam and because of our actual transgressions, nevertheless... The gospel of Mark's story is this, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we were God's enemies, even when we were ungodly and sinful, God has demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This story, when you know the beginning to the end, so deeply illustrates that even in the depth of our depravity, the sovereign God has still loved us. And the sovereign God sent his son into this world to redeem those who had placed their faith and trust in him. And so we began by looking at the story and the idea that the fallen human condition reveals how human beings will accuse God for no good reason at all. Now, we see this illustrated in verses 53 and verse 55. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now, in the story here, what that is describing is the great Sanhedrin. Uh, it's describing the highest court of Israel. It's describing the high council that actually was the Jewish leadership of Israel coming together. And then we go on to read in verse 55, Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Now that's a very significant point. In the drama of the story, I want you to understand that there was no evidence that they could use against Jesus as a basis for an accusation against him. Uh, Jesus had been born under the law of Moses. Jesus had faithfully lived his life in perfect obedience to the law of Moses. There was in the life of Jesus never any violation of the law, and therefore there was no evidence to support any violation of the law. Yet, the council arrests Jesus. They take him into custody, not on false pretenses, but on no pretenses at all. They had acted to arrest Jesus only on their desire to take him down, to destroy him, to put him to death. They wanted to put an end to Jesus. Getting the evidence during the trial and for the trial, while they had Jesus in custody, while they had Jesus under arrest, is now what they're attempting to do. It's an after-the-fact kind of thing. This was their strategy. Let's arrest Jesus. 
then we'll figure out how to put him to death. Legally, morally, according to the Jewish uh, proper procedures of due process, everything they did was remarkably unjust. Now that tells us a lot about the state of the fallen human heart. First, is Jesus going to get a fair hearing? The answer is no. The Jewish leaders are not seeking justice. They're seeking an end to Jesus. And that illustrates a second idea that we need to clearly understand. True justice and evil motivations do not go together. And it's always naive to think so. Jesus was not going to be treated with fairness and justice because the Jewish leadership have nothing but evil motivation against Christ. They have no evidence. So they're willing to break all the rules of justice and fairness to get what they want. So let's think about what this means. The evil here is against Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the Word made flesh. This shows us that human beings in a fallen state will accuse the God of truth on the basis of no truth at all. The motivation to do so is this. They have the deepest aversion and the deepest hostility to God being God over them. Now that's something that was prophesied in the Old Testament about what would happen with respect to God's Messiah. Uh, We find it laid out in Psalm 2. And in verses 2 to 3 in Psalm 2, we read this. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So that's a prophetic testimony that the leadership of Israel, and it also refers to the Roman leadership as well, but the leadership of Israel did not want God to be their God. They did not want God and God's Messiah to rule over them. They looked at the existence of God as actually holding them in some kind of captivity, and therefore they wanted to reject God. You need to understand that the heart of atheism is this same aversion to the existence of God. The early scientist who embraced the theory of evolution said, now we can be intellectually satisfied that there is no God and there's no need for God. But the second thing they said is, now we can be morally satisfied that there are no rules that bind us to the conventional morality of society. You see, not only did they want the intellectual freedom that happens when God doesn't exist, but they also were very candid about the fact that they wanted the moral freedom and enjoyed the moral freedom of the absence of God. Now, those are not good reasons to reject the existence of God. Atheism, and really, in every fallen human heart, there simply 
the aversion and hostility to the existence of God, which will provoke accusations against God, arguments against God that have no firm basis in truth at all. I want us to say that sometimes we as believers have not escaped this as well. The root of sin in our own hearts and lives is that rebellion that doesn't want God in every aspect of our lives to be sovereign over what we may and may not do. So even as we read that human beings will reject God and human beings will accuse God for no good reason, we have to say that this is not the other guys. This is not true of the other people. This is true of all people. This is where all of us start, apart from the grace of the gospel working in our hearts and lives. That's why we have to take sin so seriously. It's easy for us who believe in grace to sort of think this way. I'm saved by the cross, O blessed condition. I can sin as I please and still have remission. (laughs) That's a dangerous little poem. It's manifestly not really true. There are consequences to sin. It's our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It's our sin that he died for. And the Apostle Paul says, how can we who've died to sin in and through Christ still live in it? Sin testifies to the fact that within our hearts there is still this enmity against God. And the Apostle Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only answer to sin is grace. The only remedy for what's inside of us is enmity against God is the good news of the gospel. I just looked at my notes again. Here's something I want to say. Apart from the grace of God, you and I are at war against God. That's what sin is. War against God. Now, the the second deep revelation out of this trial of Jesus, putting God in the dock, is that human witnesses will falsely accuse God, who is the God of truth. Now, we see this as we look at verses 56 to 59. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So clearly the Jewish council has a problem. Um, having arrested Jesus 
they're looking for a way to justify putting him to death and to go on with the trial, but they're running into a huge problem. On the one hand, many, it says, were ready to testify against Jesus. Now, where do these many come from? Well, most likely, these are the close followers of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're not supposed to be members of the council itself. They're supposed to be others, but most likely they're, they're, they're close followers of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, they're ready to testify against Jesus because they've been uh, brought into the same viewpoint as the scribes and the Pharisees and the members of the council. So instead of the council doing its proper judicial job, the impartial and fair job, the council is actively itself recruiting witnesses against Jesus. They're seeking people who will lie about Christ. Hmm. Now, many have pointed out rightfully that this whole court proceeding was not even legal according to the Jewish law practices because, number one, it was at night. Trials could only be conducted during the day. Uh, Secondly, the arrest took place at night. That was not quite proper and legal as well. The arrest took place without a proper accusation being presented and without the necessary two witnesses who could give proper testimony and evidence. This shows how deeply the Jewish leadership was willing to go in order to do away with Christ. They could violate everything that they knew the Jewish law required of them. But then, in their hypocrisy, they still want to show some semblance of a trial. They want to pretend they're doing justice. Now, you know that what we've called this uh, in human history. We've said, well, this is nothing other than a kangaroo court a court that's pure fraud, a false trial. Uh, Pretense, the pretense that they're acting according to justice. So on the one hand, many were ready to testify against Jesus. But on the other hand, though there are many who are willing to testify, they can't get their testimony to agree. Uh, That's one of the problems they're facing now. You see, the central principle of the law of Moses was this, uh, with respect to due due process. There must be at least two witnesses who can come forward and testify about any accusation and crime. Two witnesses as a minimum. So Deuteronomy 17.6 and the 19.15 say this, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, and the three there was F one witness was not quite conclusive. Shall a charge be established? Only on the basis of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. No conviction without at least two witnesses. And then the law went on to say, a person shall never be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now this is a capital trial. They made it clear they want to put Jesus to death. They can't just have one person accuse Jesus. They have to have two people accuse Jesus. They have to give evidence, and that evidence has to agree. That's the problem they're facing. And so that's why this next action takes place. 
That's why the high priest now steps up to do two things that according to the rules of the Sanhedrin and in, in, in consonant with the whole Jewish law system, the chief priest was not supposed to do, and that is to now take the trial into his own hands. It happens, first of all, when he tries to get Jesus to testify against himself. Verse 60, the high priest stands up and he says to Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But we note from the text, Jesus refuses to answer. There are two very, very good reasons Jesus refuses to answer. The first is, it was prophesied in Scripture that he was going to refuse to answer. You know that great chapter in Isaiah 53, which is the chapter about the atonement? But it's also the chapter about Jesus being taken away by oppression and judgment. So it's about his arrest, it's about his trial. All of those things that are taking place in the last uh, you know, 18 hours of Jesus' life uh, are conveyed in Isaiah 53. Now, in particular, in verses 7 and 8, twice it says in the context of oppression and judgment that Jesus has taken away, that he's going to experience that, quote, he opened not his mouth, rather like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a lamb that is silent before its shears, he opened not his mouth. So it had been written of the Messiah that during this trial, he would not defend himself because he was innocent of all charges. And the right to not have to defend oneself was written into the Old Testament law. And that's the second reason Jesus said nothing. In the law of Moses, the accused never has to testify. The accused never has to testify. The burden of proof is always upon the accusers. It's always upon those who would bring the charges that they must also bring the evidence to sustain the charges. The accuser never has to testify at all. Again, the law of Moses says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a person be convicted or a person be put to death. So in faithful obedience to the law, Jesus refuses to speak. He refuses to testify in his own behalf. He refuses to testify because this is the law of God. I want us to note something about this in terms of the ancient world. This is unique. 1,500 years before Jesus came, when the law of Moses was given, the protection of the accused is inscribed in the law of God and the law of Moses such that no one accused of a crime has to testify on his own behalf, but at least two eyewitnesses must appear to sustain the charges that are brought against the accused. You don't find that in the other ancient law codes. It wasn't common at all in Greco-Roman law. This is the great heritage of Judeo-Christianity to Western civilization. 
Everywhere you might read about human rights, where it's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the United Nations has published, or any of the so-called democracies of the world that protect the, vict- protect the accused, anywhere and everywhere that a constitution says that an accused person does not have to testify against himself, that is the heritage of Judeo-Christianity in the world. So significant that our founding fathers made sure that this was enshrined in the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which essentially says that no person would ever have to testify against himself. The right of protection of self-incrimination comes directly from the Old Testament book of the law. And all of those raised, all of those schooled in what happened to Jesus sees the significance and the importance of this. Jesus here is silent because he does not, according to justice, have to say a thing. The onus is always on those who would accuse. It also points this out. When God is on trial, as he is before the human race today, 20th and 21st century, uh, as we see uh, always the arguments being God must justify his existence to us and God must justify how he governs the universe to us, uh, why does God allow this? Why does God allow that? Why does God permit this? Why does God permit that? You know, if God exists, then how could this be? Those kinds of claims again and again and again. You understand that God remains silent. Back in 2010, I debated an atheist. And during his performance, during the debate, uh, he made a big deal about the fact that if, that if God existed, why didn't God come down right now and show himself to him? He, this was a trick that he did in many debates. He would always say, you out there who believe in God, I'm asking God to show himself right now. I'm asking God, I'll believe in him if he'll show me that he exists right now. God doesn't have to prove himself when he has already proven himself by the creation of this world and when he's already proven himself by everything he's done in the gospel concerning his son. We may attempt to put God on trial, but as soon as we do, God will, in fact, refuse to speak because God isn't obligated to speak in his own defense at all. In fact, think about what the Apostle Paul said, Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. And then dropping down to verse 19, Paul says, You will say to me, Why then does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? So what does Paul say? Verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul's response is, God doesn't have to defend anything that God does. God's not on trial, folks. It's the human race. We are the ones who are all wrong before God. 
then there's the second action that the high high priest takes, which is also completely out of line with the Jewish law. Mark doesn't show this clearly. Matthew brings this element in. His gospel is specifically for the Hebrews, for the Jewish people, so they would catch this and understand this. But what, what, what happens in Mark's gospel, we go from Jesus being silent to the high priest saying, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And it goes on to say, and from now, from now on you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power on high and coming on the clouds of glory. What we don't see in Mark's gospel is made very clear in Matthew's gospel. Chapter 26, verse 63, where Matthew adds this. Here's what the high priest said in fullness. I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Now, you see, what the high priest did was he placed Jesus under oath. The accused, because he never had to testify on his own behalf, was never placed under oath. It was only the accusers who were placed under oath. But if you were placed under oath, you had to speak the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the high priest had the authority, though he used it wrongly in the court of law, the high priest had the authority to administer this oath. When he administers this oath on Jesus, Jesus complies. And therefore, what Jesus says under oath before the living God, according to Jewish law, is going to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or it's the most deepest form of perjury and falsehood that can be uttered. And at that point, Jesus says, yes, I am. And from this point on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. The reason Jesus follows through under this oath Because there's one thing that the living God cannot do. He can never deny himself. He can never deny the truth. He can never deny who he truly is. And some have said the Gospels never clearly say that Jesus claimed to be God. Or that Jesus never clearly claimed to be the Messiah of Israel and all these things. But it's simply not true. Here we have Jesus of Nazareth placed under the strongest, highest oath that could be administered under the law of Israel saying, yes, I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes, I am. All throughout his ministry, Jesus had demonstrated this to be so. Miraculous powers over nature, over demons, over sickness, over death. Divine authority 
to forgive human beings their sin. And now on the last day of his life, under oath, he declares to the highest authority in Israel, I am the Son of God. I am your Messiah. Well, we have to stop here. We can't continue to look at how human judges will abuse Jesus when he declares the truth. What we've covered so far, though, tells us this. What is being done to Jesus is how fallen human beings treat God. Don't miss that. The treatment of Christ is how fallen human beings innately, instinctively treat God. The trial of Jesus is a true expose of what human beings will do in their hostility and enmity as enemies of God. It's what they will do because when evil has its power, it will do all that its power enables it to do. In deepest humility, Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and to placed on trial in this way. And you see the evil unleashed, which demonstrates the hostility that human beings have against God. I know from a lot of stories that people have shared with me the evil that's been done to them. At times, perhaps most of us have been innocent victims of the perpetration of evil by someone else. But at the same time, None of us can say that we have escaped from being contaminated by that same kind of evil. What we see in other people who may have hurt and injured us deeply, we also know according to Scripture and the conscience and testimony of our own hearts, it's evident and resident in our own hearts. What took Jesus to the cross is found in every one of us. In our own ways, we've all put God in the dock, Jesus on trial, and sinned against him. That's our story. But the story of the Gospel of Mark is about the greater story of God that into this awful reality God has given the good news of his son so that even though as fallen human beings we have been wicked, we have been ungodly, we have been enemies against God and against his son, God yet loved this fallen world, God yet loved this broken world, and God demonstrated his love for this broken world and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we through faith in Jesus 
might become the righteousness of God in him. Every day, as we live with the evil around us and the evil inside of us, we must also look at all of this in light of a story of God's Son. Live in accordance with the gospel. Live knowing Jesus has died for us. Live knowing that your sins are forgiven. Live knowing that it's only the grace of God that can conquer our sin. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for the story, uh, the Gospel of Mark, the great story of all of Scripture, of your creating us, our fallenness, the great redemption in Christ. And then help us to go through this world to measure everything going on around us and everything going on inside us by the truth of your word that we might live by faith in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.